Hello and welcome to As It Comes, Life from a Musician's Point of View. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I'm astounded to see how many countries from which people are tuning into this podcast. I can see where you all are. The highest number of listeners are located in the UK, followed by New Zealand, Australia, and Germany. No surprise there, given my personal ties to those countries. But a whole lot of you in the States, Canada, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, Italy, India, South Africa. Very tempted to do a South African accent, but I will not do it. Nigeria, Japan, Slovakia, Chile, Brazil, to name a few. I'm assuming that listeners in such a range of countries is to do with the connections made by a lot of my guests, and it's indicative of the impact these people are making with their music around the world. The power of music, right? So to all you lovely people worldwide, hello from my kitchen in South London. Hope you're having a lovely time doing whatever you're doing, be it commuting, cooking, gardening, working out in the gym, run faster procrastinating, staring into space. Thanks for tuning in. Onwards with the pod. My guest this episode is pianist and coffee connoisseur John Paul Muir. One of the things I love about running a podcast is that it gives me an excuse to catch up with old friends. I've known JP since my days at Auckland Uni, and our chat very much cheered me up from a bout of the old January blues. Have a listen to our conversation. podcast before uh no i haven't this is your first podcast this is, this is the inaugural podcast which is very exciting i'm very excited to be on oh well welcome to the podcast john paul muir thank you and i should also say welcome back because you've recently just come back to the uk yes tell us yes. a little bit about your recent travels yeah the past few years now i've been um lucky enough to head home to new zealand for christmas and summer and I usually go there for a few weeks and catch up with all the family and friends and things like that. So this Christmas was no exception. And um, yeah, a really good friend was getting married as well. And it was a really lovely time. So it's nice to break up the winter over here, which is for me uh, still feels very long, at least if I don't get away. Do you have any yeah. tricks as to getting a good ticket to go back to New Zealand when it's not too expensive? This is a good question. Well, I basically just try and book as early as I can. And I've, I think I've joined this Jack's Flight Club, oh, you know, thing. Um, yeah. But I still haven't managed to pick up one of those one of those sort of golden Kiwi fares yet. But no, normally I usually manage to get something relatively reasonable um, if I book ahead. And this time I flew via Korean Air because I, I was going via Seoul and Jeju mm -hmm. to see a friend. And, and do an album release gig. And so I flew by them. And that was, that was really nice. How do you find uh, South Korea? I've never been there before. Well, I love the food. Yeah, this is the <laughs> thing. I feel like if I went to Korea, I would have an amazing time. Yeah, eating. no, I mean, it's, um, that's definitely one of the highlights for me. I'd been to Seoul before, um, but this time I was um, just one night in Seoul and then visiting uh, Jeju Island, uh, right off the south there. And um, this is a lot warmer than um, in Seoul, but it was kind of a little bit like the North Shore of Auckland, bizarrely enough, because the shoreline is all, um, you know, got a lot of volcanic rocks and stuff along the oh, beach, right. just like sort just of like the North Shore of Auckland from Rangitoto. So, um, is that where you're yeah. from? You're from the North Shore? Yeah. yeah okay, North yeah. Shore of Auckland, See, I'm, yeah. I'm not from the shore. I'm from. I'm from old Remuera <laughs> on the other side. I was actually reflecting earlier about 
when I first met you, what struck me as quite strange was that I remember like 15 years ago when I first met you, I didn't know that you played the piano. Really? Where was this? <laughs> so I think I, I first remember. met you at Auckland Youth Orchestra rehearsal ah. where you did not play the piano. Oh, wow. So I thought you were a trombonist. That's a long time ago. You played the trombone. <laughs> it was a, bit, a long time ago. I was, I was thinking about it. It was 2005. Wow. Okay. Fifteen years ago now. Yeah, that's a long time ago. I really enjoyed that time, though. That was it was really exciting. I never played the trombone very well, but I I loved being in an orchestra, and I was playing in a big band. I remember as well. But I remember the first time I joined the Auckland Youth Orchestra was there was an opportunity to go on this tour to Numea, New Caledonia, and and it was sort of like a a, a week, I think at least, and it was very very. Uh, heavily subsidized so it was a really great opportunity to travel and and um so that's i remember why why i started playing with them and it was great fun and then of course ended up doing a concerto with them in later years so it was great not on the trombone though not on the trombone (laughs) i wonder if i was in the orchestra when you did your concerto yeah i'm not sure that was we did ravel um g major concerto around um we toured around the states, but I don't. Think oh, I didn't go on that tour. You were on that tour. No, yeah. can't remember why. Can't remember why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant times! I just wonder if, as a pianist, so much of what a pianist does is solo, and do you ever get that craving to perform with other people? I think I've been lucky enough to do, always do quite a lot of collaborative stuff, and that started back in high school doing a lot of chamber music. And then the chamber music was was a really big part of my musical development as a teenager. I was lucky enough to play with some really, really good people, and that helped me improve a lot. So I was always doing a lot of chamber music alongside the the solo. And then when I got into jazz uh, as a teenager as well, that was mostly in group situations. And even doing other things like um, playing in bands and things like that, I, I was always doing a bit of that as well. So I was spreading myself quite thin in some ways when you consider that my study at university was predominantly just, you know, solo classical piano focused. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe um, maybe I would have got through more solo piano repertoire if I hadn't done those things. But in, certainly in hindsight, I think it's given me a really broad range of musical skills. Yeah, yeah. a more diverse skill set. Yeah. You know, you can, you can do your your solo foundation work during the day and then moonlight as a jazz pianist at night time. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I enjoy doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, it's a nice thing to do lots of variety. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, you do run the danger of being pigeonholed. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously been the way that things have panned out for me. And in some ways, it was a conscious decision. And in some ways, it was just my musical personality emerged in this way where I realised fairly early on that I enjoyed doing a mixture of different uh, musical activities and my taste in music was quite broad as well. Mm. And so that I did, you know, realize that uh, sort of life as a solo uh, sort of concert pianist, you know, the, the sort of archetypal existence um, on tour, giving concerts all the time was not really for me. And so I think I had that realization quite early on. That was a, that was a positive one. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine being quite freeing once you realize yeah. that, and I'm sure you're not the only person who's come to that realisation. If you're just going to strive towards that one thing, Mm. you may get to a point where you realise this is not for me. (laughs) Yeah. And and a lot of the study, of course, is, you know, what I've done was was geared towards performing on stage and just doing that as 
predominantly as a soloist. But in reality, um, yeah, my, my musical lifestyle and work and everything now is, is pretty varied. And that's the, uh, that's the way I like it. So, there's, mm. you know, I, I enjoy uh, doing a mixture of, of different styles and teaching a mixture of different styles as well and, and just being generally involved creatively with yeah. other musicians and people. How much teaching do you do currently? Um, I do about three days a week all up mm-hmm. and I've sort of set it up so that I have quite a nice variety of students um, in yeah, terms of... Yeah, you mentioned variety yeah. of styles. So yeah. you're teaching classical and jazz and... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so at, at, I mean, at one place I'm teaching predominantly classical with a bit of jazz. Another one I'm, um, I'm meant to be the jazz piano teacher, but I end up doing other things as well, like some classical and some songwriting, some composition, things really? like that as well, wow. just as a visiting, you know, a visiting piano teacher. But yeah, those two places. And then um, in my private, private students that I have, which are mostly adults, that's a real mix. So I, I like variety in that as well. Yeah. And that certainly keeps me on my toes and keeps me learning and it keeps me uh, paying my bills as well. So, well, yeah. that's always a good thing. <laughs> it forces you to use your brain in different ways, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. When you have students from different backgrounds and it's really quite satisfying when you discover how students learn. Yeah, especially with adult students. Uh, th- there are certain challenges to teaching adults or mm. p- particularly adults who are... Who are picking up piano for the first time or, or rejuvenating it after, you know, playing, playing as a, as a kid. And I, I, I got some insight into this recently because I, about a year ago, I started learning tango. And um, this, I realized when I started learning to, to dance tango, that this was the first time that I'd actually, you know, started to do, learn something completely new for a very long time. Yeah, as an adult. As well. an adult, I, I, I caught myself doing a lot of the things that I identified in my, my own students, you know, overanalyzing every move and like, you know, being really afraid to sort of just, just let go and go for things and things like this. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. It gave me a little bit more empathy, I think, with yeah. some of the things that my, my adult students were going totally. through. Totally, because a, a young student won't question things as much. If you tell a little seven-year-old, G major's got one sharp. And they're like, yeah, great. Remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. And then you get the adult student who says, yes, but why? Yes, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) they love the but why questions. And, you know, and what about this and what about that? And uh, I think the sort of, there's more of a fear of failure as well, because just this the way, way, um, the live, you know, our lives sort of go, you know, you're always trying to get things right. And chances are uh, they're probably already very good at something at that point of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it must be quite foreign for them to all of a sudden not be able to do something perfectly. Yeah, which is arguably a really good reason to do it. But it also, yeah, I think it certainly presents challenges for for people who are are very accomplished in in their lives in many, many respects. You know, that just reminds me of, I think you know this person, but I'm not going to say their name, but... (laughs) It does crack me up when um, you meet people who are very, very good at one thing but can't do something that you imagine would be quite simple for them. So, for example, very fine pianist, cannot touch type. Right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you would think that those two things would go together, wouldn't you? Yeah, but maybe they just didn't learn how to touch type. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What do you do? What do you do? So, speaking of solo playing... Mm. You've recently released your solo album, mm-hmm. The Cornerstone Suite. Yep. And I actually listened to it last week while I was walking around Brockwell Park. It was a perfect wow. lap of the park. Oh, just fantastic. And I put it on and I was wandering around and it just became a bit of a 
soundtrack or kind of commentary yeah. to what was going on in the park. Ooh. I reached the eponyms track, Cornerstone, <laughs> and immediately started to pick up my pace. I realized, oh, I'm starting to walk faster. <laughs> I think it was must have been quite driving. Mm, mm. And then I reached one track, which was quite heated, I think, and that was when I noticed that a dog and a swan were having quite a vicious altercation right. near the pond. Okay. <laughs> it was very enjoyable, and I really felt like the album took me on a journey. Uh, so I use the word journey because I feel like it's one continuous yep. running track everything segues into the next thing Mm. tell us a little bit about this journey that you took creating this album yeah yeah no you're absolutely right it it, it is a journey um, both to get to the release of the album but also the music itself Mm. the the various themes and in the suite were written over quite a long period of time uh, eight or nine years and 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 one one tune even uh, a few years before that so they were not designed to become one suite, but in my experimentation with playing the different songs around and looking at what works well with others, I, I realized that actually I could bring them together into one unifying suite that takes you on a journey and that has some development. Some of the themes that I was exploring in those compositions, that you, you, can, you can hear some relationship between them, some key development, things like that. And so I was uh, very interested in that. And it was a couple of years ago, I got some friends together and hired a small venue and said, I want to try this thing out, come along. And I played through the suite as a bit of an experiment, just just as a solo piano thing. I got a friend of mine to record it. Yeah, it seemed to work out quite well. And then I didn't do anything with it for a while. Yeah. Um, you speak about this so casually. How do you feel about performing in front of your peers? Just in my experience, I'd find that the most harrowing kind of experience. Yeah, no, sure. And when it's very personal kind of music as well, it's quite soul-bearing. Mm. Um, I certainly would, would class this music as that. It's it's all of the tunes on the... On the um, on the suite are not compositions that I sat down to write. They just sort of came out at various times in my life when I was, you know, sitting at the piano and expressing something that I felt needed to be expressed. So it's almost like a personal diary over many, many years. So yeah, I remember that, that that first time I performed it through, you know, for friends, I I was a bit nervous, definitely. Um, But I was also excited to share the music and see what would happen with it because there's such a strong improvised element to it. Like the the moment and the space and the vibe from from anyone in the room was going to play a big part in the creation of it as well. So So every time you perform the suite all the way through, are there elements of it that are changing? Yeah, definitely. Um, So the the sort of format has a fairly traditional jazz one where the, the theme of each composition is presented and it's and I usually present that in a pretty homogenous way there are some variations but in terms of many of the musical kind of fundamentals it's pretty pretty similar and then I will improvise on those themes and that's where there is a lot of variation there's a lot of that's different every time there are some small um, elements within the suite that I've that I've composed and I'll play the same each time there's a small chorale bit uh, called a prelude and then various bits that are, that are, I've worked out exactly how I want to do it but but at least 60% of it is is improvised in that sort of jazz jazz way yeah. so you have that flexibility to be in the moment definitely that's why that's a live recording mm-hmm. uh, the recording that I've released is is from that very first time I played it through. Um, so it's a, me also responding to playing that music in that way, yeah. in a very immediate way. And, yeah, I was um, going to ask, yeah. so you just sat down and you played it all the way through, no edits at all? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was just a, the, the recording I've released is, a, is the live recording from that, which is just a straight through live recording. Yeah. It's very impressive. Well, I mean, I, it's an interesting, yeah, I, I sat on the recording for a couple of years for several reasons. I, I was wondering about doing, I had plans to sort of do bigger things with some of the pieces, workshop it with an ensemble, explore different ways of presenting the music. And then for, for various reasons, I didn't get around to that or it didn't feel right. And I remember just revisiting that recording not so long ago and, and, and realizing that actually it represents the music that I've written really, really well. And that was the way it was conceived. And I should just um, present it like that. And I can always revise it and, and do other things with it later. Yeah, that was a really good realization to make, I think, and, and, and an interesting experience to, to listen to it back after a gap of a while. Yeah. Where did you record it? How did you find a space? Yeah, um, it's it's a pretty special and unique space, but um, also a pretty humble one. Um, but it's in it's a small music room off um, of Great Ormond Street, that's owned by a friend of mine who who operates it as a sort of a rehearsal room and things like that. But it's um it's, it's actually the oldest house in Bloomsbury. It's got an amazing history. But he has a a lovely old Steinway piano there that's kept in pretty good nick, and it's a nice room that holds about forty people mm-hmm. max. But yeah, I knew of that space and I knew the owner, so yeah. And it was convenient for me. So that's where we recorded it. And also the, my friend the, uh, who recorded it was very familiar with that space as well, which helped. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the fact that it was a good soundtrack around the park. So oh. the, the artwork that I, I, really I'm using for it is, a, is an original painting from my dad. My dad painted uh, many years ago. And it's of a landscape view in New Zealand where, yeah, from a farm. But you can see some hills in the distance and then a sort of a creek bed with some willows and it's sort of in winter. So it's kind of a, uh, an interesting kind of scene, but it, I think it speaks to the journey of the music, which is mm. quite kind of, well, it's, yeah. it's always in motion. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Everything absolutely. is always moving. Yeah. Mm. No, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was such a nice soundtrack <laughs> to my park walk. So you recently took this on tour, as we mentioned to yeah. South Korea and New Zealand. What made you bring it to South Korea for a start? Well, I just literally the opportunity, really. Not just, um, the, food. <laughs> not just the food. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a nice stopover on the way back to New Zealand, and I have a very good friend there, and his mother has a cafe and um, restaurant there, and so there was an opportunity to play the suite there, mm-hmm. as on the way through, as as um, sort of part of their Christmas celebrations and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. It's totally um, about who you know, yeah. isn't it? You know, like putting up these constant yeah. opportunities. It's kind of nice when you have your friends that can that can help you out and yeah like, want to do a constant career sure yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> My <mom's> got a <laughs> space <laughs> no but it was really nice there were some people there that came along that were more familiar with classical music and so I think they were really really fascinated and interested to hear a, sort of a solo jazz performance and um, so that was really nice to be able to to be able to talk to them about their impressions of that and because yeah. the suite sort of it has even I think you can um hear my classical background very much in it, particularly at the beginning. But then you start to also hear my explorations, of course, with jazz. improvisation and jazz. Yeah, I got a bit of Debussy and Impressionism in there. Yeah, I love I love French Impressionist stuff. So yeah, yeah. There, there's no uh, no surprise there. <laughs> yeah. Been doing a little bit of research on Debussy recently. But did you know he ran away to Jersey? He had um, to Jersey to Jersey, one of the Channel Islands, because he had an affair with one of his students' mum. <laughs> and yeah, he had an affair, and he was still married at the time. And then he disappeared off to Jersey. I had, didn't know that. Had a romantic wow. getaway. And that's where he worked on La Mer and also solo piano piece, which I can't pronounce in French, The Joyous Island. Right. Oh, Lille Joyeuse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Ah, amazing. I didn't know that. There you go, Jersey. Right, home yeah. Of, home of the cows and milk and... Yeah, yeah. Romantic getaway for Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Ah. Um, and you also took your album to New Zealand and you performed it at Lewis Ed's piano showroom, right? Exactly, yeah. Did you know I used to work there? I do, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember that. And and John Edie's always been a wonderful support um, and um, was very, very happy to host an album release gig there. They have lots of nice Steinways there, I believe. Exactly. So <laughs> it was a joy to play it on, on one of one of uh, the beautiful Steinways there. And I got a nice recording from that as well. And that was a really, really enjoyable evening. Mm-hmm. Catching up with, with people at home as, as, as well there. So yeah, it was great. This is a bit of a random question, but just as someone who doesn't play the piano and I get to play my instrument all the time. But do you ever come to a venue and you're faced with a piano that is just absolutely horrible to play? Yeah, it's happened many times. Mm. Once I remember actually in more recent times doing a small jazz gig with a singer and a bass player in a, in a sort of local community space um, for some for some older people. And we had asked about, oh, was there a piano there and so forth? And oh, yeah, yes, yes, there's a piano there. It's fine. So, uh, But when I turned up, I realized the piano was, was in tune, relatively speaking. However, it was in tune a semitone out from... <gasps> from real pitch I don't have perfect pitch but I have pretty solid relative pitch so this was very disconcerting for me <laughs> playing um playing this and I mean I, I would have been fascinated to know what was going on in my brain because of the shapes of me feeling certain chord shapes but hearing something like different like uh it was it was yeah it was it was very very strange and disconcerting was it a semitone sharp or flat it was a semitone flat. Flat. Yeah. Oh, it's a really yeah. strange feeling because this happened to me just last week, actually. I was oh, doing really? some rehearsals in a church in East London. Right. And the electric piano electric piano that was there was, for some reason, tuned to semitone flat. Wow. And you couldn't change it? Well, there was some weird knob at the back and then it tuned really, really high. Wow. But it was its default setting was a semitone flat. And so then, mm. therefore, all the instrumentalists, we had to tune down a semitone. I mean, I guess Baroque cellists do it all the time, and it, yeah. I think it can lend itself quite well to a certain resonance and yeah. earthiness to the sound, but it just sounded very gravelly. Also, because we we're playing contemporary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought, this is really weird. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, no, yeah, you, I think as a pianist, one of the things you have to get used to, uh, as I'm sure all, all pianists can attest to, is... is trying to get the most out of whatever you you have to play um and that's all part of the all part of the deal it's your lot isn't it i guess yeah i mean used to it we don't have to carry around our instruments so <laughs> you know well you do if you're doing a jazz gig and you're well yeah if i'm if i'm bringing a keyboard <laughs> around yeah i'm getting used to lugging lugging those around how do you do that can you take that on the tube yeah well i've got i've got a sort of a a 70 sort of something key Nord stage piano which has got a nice case on wheels and I can actually take that pretty easily on public transport which is good yeah <laughs> but you're not going to be taking a, a grand piano on the tube yeah that would that would be pretty interesting okay. <laughs> so we'll move on now we've now reached the wild card question round wow that sounds <laughs> exciting <laughs> Everyone always reacts in a different way. (laughs) So this is where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. Okay, cool. So we have other instruments, Mm. historical dinner party, and we also have caffeinated beverages. (laughs) It's an eclectic mix of topics. (laughs) Wow, okay. 
Well, let's <laughs> let's go with caffeinated beverages, given we we were already talking about that at the beginning of our. I meeting. feel like I knew you were you were gonna uh, you were gonna <laughs> choose that one because I think of you and I do think of coffee. All right, tell us where's the best place to get a coffee in London and the best place to get a coffee back home in New Zealand. Right. Uh, well, I mean London. When I moved here, there were precious few places, but one of the great ones was just down the road um, from where I moved and that was called well it's still there it's, it's called the espresso room and Ben Townsend was sort of one of the pioneers of specialty coffee in London so I was very lucky to very quickly discover him when I moved to London because one of the things that because I love my coffee everyone was when I was moving to London everyone was saying oh how are you going to cope with yeah. you know the coffee situation and um so I was, you know, I, I was uh, a little worried, but... Uh, Make friends with a barista. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's now moved on to other things, but specialty coffee's really exploded over here, as, as, yeah. as, as, as of course you know. So there's many, many really nice places now. I really like, because um, I live in central London, I uh, frequently go to Redemption Coffee Roasters on Lamb's Conduit, which is a really interesting new social enterprise and also origin have a nice espresso bar up at near uh, near the british library which is very convenient for me and um they are very consistent so yeah i finished my coffee already that you made for me with the redemption um, <laughs> yeah. coffee and uh, as i was saying yeah, the, the kiwis uh, i'm a big fan of caravan um which of course is a kiwi outfit and I go there once a week for brunch. See, so, is, yeah. isn't it funny how it's, it's such a special treat thing over here, isn't it? Whereas in New Zealand, that's just normal. You go into any cafe yep. and you can get your, your poached eggs, your smashed avo on toast. Like, even tiny little towns in the middle of the North Island will have something like that. Yeah, but here it's yeah. like, oh, let's venture into central London or into the deepest, darkest depths of East London where it's yeah. really, really trendy. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> get exactly. Out, get our poached eggs. I mean, I love, I, I, I really love uh, good food and uh, I spend a lot of money on food. <laughs> and brunch is one of my favourite meals and, and I, I, I just really, you know, enjoy, I value sort of having a leisurely brunch on a on, on any day, really, but I can manage it. Um, and, I mean, I wouldn't uh, say no to a brunch. Do you eat yeah. before you do brunch? Uh, no, not, no, not normally, no. Right. no it's, a, it's a proper brunch. I have yeah. to sometimes have a little warm-up snack before I get brunch. Not that I have brunch that often, because I quite often just make food at home. If I'm going out for brunch, say to mm -hmm. Caravan, I will have a little warm-up piece of toast. Fair enough. Fair enough. There are sometimes cues you encounter, um, oh, that's and true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes it's, uh, it takes a little while. But no, I, I love it. It's certainly a fixture on my my week. Oh, that's that's a really nice thing to look forward to. I think because it's not often that musicians are going to be working on a Sunday morning. I used to do a bit of a bit of teaching and and you know and sometimes far too many gigs on the weekend. And now I try not to do anything on Sunday apart from. Recording a podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, recording a podcast. Every Sunday evening, I, I host a, a, a jam session, uh, a jazz evening here in, in Bloomsbury at Good Enough College. But apart from that, I basically don't make any other bookings and, you know, might might be working Saturday night. But um, other than that, I try to keep the weekend pretty. It's nice. Yeah, it's nice to uh, remember to have days off, mm. especially as a freelance musician. And it's very easy to say yes to absolutely every single gig that comes your way as I did to you last week. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, all good. But, um, but it, it does it does happen. And then sometimes you look at your diary and you just think, when can I have a morning off? Yeah. Brunch. I think most freelancers like us have, have been through a kind of process of, of getting to a point where you realize I, I have to stop 
saying yes and you have to reevaluate that kind of insecurity of <laughs> maybe oh maybe i'm not you know not gonna have enough work things like that and you just realize that actually um you need to balance things um yeah. in order to be in peak condition yes. as a musical athlete and um you know and also just not go crazy and yeah, have some just space ha- have, yeah. have a life so last night i actually went to the pub and i went with four musician friends it was a Saturday night. We went out to a pub in Forest Hill, and I just thought, this is unbelievable. Five freelance <laughs> musicians at the pub on a Saturday. It's like we're normal people. <laughs> I shouldn't say normal people, but people with normal jobs. <laughs> yeah, that is a rarity, actually. It really is. It's difficult to, for us all to get together in, in yeah. those usual times. I think that's one of the reasons why I – yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but a lot of – musician friends that I have that are freelancers we really struggle to to meet up because our mm-hmm. schedules are always evolving and yeah. um it's really difficult to find those moments where we can yeah and you'll get maybe 90% of the people in the same room together and then one person will be like oh I'm really sorry but I can't because I'm doing this on that night yeah yeah like, oh, absolutely yeah. you know the best way to get a whole lot of musicians together I think is to have someone come from overseas like a Kiwi this is true. Come from overseas and visit, and then everyone makes the effort to go and see them. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And yeah, inevitably, someone will be in town yeah. at some point, <laughs> just, just just passing through London. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, it's, it's always effective. Yeah. But I do find that sometimes I'm seeing my friends in New Zealand more often than some of my friends in London. Wow. Okay. Because I don't know what it is about London. It's just, just the thought of venturing too far it's just it's difficult it's not enough hours in the day yeah and then you go back to new zealand and you're there on holiday yeah people make the effort to see you and of course everywhere is only a 15 minute drive away yeah 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 no absolutely it's um london's a bit of a a bit of a hamster wheel in that way but uh that's one of the reasons why i love it as well i suppose the exciting kind of pace of life suits me Suits me right now, so. Oh, that's good. Mm. And you haven't, you haven't burnt out. That's <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tell us about your favourite coffee joint in New Zealand. New Zealand. Well, I mean, I was just back, and of course the coffee's always evolving over there. Um, convenience plays a bit of a part in, <laughs> in where I, I would probably go in New Zealand, but, you know, there's, there's great coffee in many places, but my family lives in Long Bay. Mm-hmm. And on the North Shore. On the North Shore, yes, right at the top there. Um, we're very lucky. There's a beautiful beach up there, of course. But yeah, there's a really nice new cafe in Torbay Village. Uh, well, it's actually not new anymore. I lie, it's been there a little while now. But called Scout. So when I'm back there, I usually frequent that a fair bit. Yeah. And that's got uh, pretty good coffee. One one thing that um, we mentioned before about uh, before we started the podcast about oat milk, which um, <laughs> at the risk of sounding really really trendy, I love um, and drink most of my beverages with oat milk. Now. But yeah, that really hasn't, uh, you know, sort of cottoned on yet. Um, in New Zealand? In New Zealand. Yeah, I was going to ask actually, because yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's been almost a year since I was back. But back then I was I was still having dairy milk. But um, yeah, I mean, oat milk seems to be everywhere here. Mm. It would be very rare to find a cafe where yeah. you can't get oat milk. Yeah. But in New Zealand, not so much. Not so much. No, I mean, when I was last there, there was, I think, one cafe in Ponsonby, which um, was serving like a, an oat milk that was that was prepared for baristas, you know, but that was about it. I'm, so I think it, it's still, everyone's uh, obsessed with coconut. Oh, and, uh, I don't like coconut milk yeah, in a coffee because it just makes it taste, I mean, I love coconut and I love coffee, but I don't want my coffee to taste like coconut. Yeah, it yeah. really disrupts the flavor, doesn't it? So. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so tropical all of a sudden. But yeah, in New Zealand, everyone is all about 
dairy milk because the dairy industry. Yeah, yeah. And soy milk. Yeah, which is yeah, so nineties really. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Soy milk. And yeah, not not actually that great for the environment either. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. I yeah, I'm starting to get a bit nostalgic about New Zealand now. Well, when when are you when are you planning to next go back? Um, have you not decided no plans yet? yet? Generally, go back over Easter. Mm. It seems to be every two years. Mm. Easter is quite affordable. Yeah, haven't been back for Christmas since 2014. Right, that's that a, a long little, time. Yeah, that's yeah. A long ago, yeah, five years now. Easter tends to be quite good because, as you know, weather's still quite good. It's a good time to go. It's yeah. Fijoa season. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I remember now your love of, your deep and abiding love of Fijoas. Is that a thing that I'm known for? <laughs> <laughs> At least in my mind, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So I think I think of JP and I think of coffee and then you think of me and you think of Fijoas. For those who don't know what Fijoas are, Fijoas are like a guava-like fruit originating from South America. And you cut them in half and eat them like a kiwi fruit. Yeah, I always struggle to, when if people ask me to describe what a, what a Fijoa tastes like, I, I'm completely at a loss. What tastes like a Fijoa? It really tastes like nothing else. It tastes yeah. like, I think the closest description I have is if you've just had pineapple, but you've recently brushed your teeth. That wow. sounds disgusting, but... Insightful though. Mm. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. That kind of um, acidity, but also... Freshness. <laughs> and sweetness, yeah. As well, yeah. No, I love, actually, Crosstown Donuts are doing a Fijoa donut. Ah, right. Coming okay. out in time for Waitangi Day. Excellent. Oh, I should check that out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. It's an absolute pleasure. So where can people find out more about you and listen to your album? Uh, well, the album is is up on all of the digital music stores um, and where you would expect to find it. So if you if you search my name, John Paul Muir, and the Cornerstone Suite, it'll pop up. And I'm actually getting some vinyl made at the moment. Everyone's doing the vinyl uh, thing, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it appears that way because it's taking a lot longer for the vinyl to arrive than I originally anticipated. But um, I'll have a short, uh, sort of a small limited vinyl release, hopefully available in mid to end of February. And I'll be putting that up on a band camp. But um, aside from that, you can keep following my um, gigs and what I'm doing on the most reliable uh, places on, is on Facebook. Um, my website is going to be revamped very, very shortly, johnpaulmuir.com, but it's, it's a little bit old at the moment. Do right. you do all <laughs> but, that uh, revamping yeah. yourself, doing all the website work? I think this time I probably will. I'm not particularly skilled at websites, but mm-hmm. um, like Squarespace and these kind of, you know, web- yeah, sort of places now, they yeah. seem to be really, really user-friendly. So I think I'm, I'm going to have a go myself. You um, say that, yeah. but like I've had the domain name for asitcomes.com for almost a year now and I still have not done anything about <laughs> it. And I, I doubt I would have done anything about it by the time this comes out. Oh, no, I'm very, I'm very good at procrastinating, so I can empathize. Okay, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'll... Um, get that up and running at some point and one Mm. more question what's the reason behind the name the cornerstone suite that's a good question how it came about you know talking about procrastination i had to come up with a name and quite quickly actually when i uh, the first time i premiered it live in public was for the london jazz festival in 2017 and I, i had quite a quick deadline to get the uh, copy sorted for but in all honesty the, the the title track cornerstone it was is definitely the central composition in the suite. That's when I started walking faster. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of the first track on the album, which has quite a groove to it. 
the feeling I have with that with that track is that it's about finding some strength and trust and faith in your in something that's roots you, whatever holds you, anchors you, finding strength in that. And so Cornerstone came to mind as a foundation kind of thing. Yeah. That track sort of because that's also the centerpiece for the suite. But um, but also uh, there's a certain strength in that. Um, so that was that was the thinking behind okay. choosing cornerstone and yeah went Find, from there. Finding strength in your procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> I think procrastination can be a very creative process. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And then then you just you find your brain working in ways that you couldn't have imagined otherwise. Ah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Absolutely. I'll use that excuse anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been brilliant catching up with you. You too. And thank you for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. That was my chat with John Paul Muir. It was lovely to chat to someone who was just so serious about brunch and coffee. Important things. This week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me is a general observation from a colleague of mine who wishes to remain anonymous about Depping, that is, deputising, subbing, filling in for someone, often at late notice. It's a tricky thing, depping. You've got to be on it enough to get through a show, often without rehearsal. Maybe you've sat in on a show if you're lucky, or you've had the music sent to you in advance. Or maybe you've picked up a call from a fixer saying, Hello, we've had an emergency. Can you come in uh, now? So you find yourself all of a sudden in a situation where you might be sight reading on stage. Well, the first time you've played certain bits of music in context with the rest of the band is in the show itself. You might run into members of the public outside the venue before the show who say, oh, was there a show on tonight? What are you playing? And you have no choice but to say, uh, I don't know, because you haven't seen the music yet. You're caught in a bit of a bind when you're depping. You say yes to the gig because often that's your way into playing with that ensemble. And you want to do a good job so that you get asked to play with them again. But how good a job you do depends on how well you handle the pressure of working in a situation where you've had hardly any notice and haven't prepared. On the other hand, if you say no altogether, because you don't have faith in your own ability to do the job well, then the fixer probably isn't going to ask you again if you've denied a chance to prove yourself. So really, music college should prepare you for the musical and technical aspects of being in a high-pressure situation. You should be able to sit down, play the repertoire, and get on with the job. What's unexpected is having to focus on the non-musical aspects required for successful depping, like getting on with others in your section, remembering people's names, not getting distracted, and maintaining a healthy brain space by not letting the daunting task ahead get the better of you. And sometimes when you do mistakes as a dep, it feels like the world is ending. Oh, I'm never going to get booked again, you might think. But I like to think, and I hope, that others in the ensemble are willing to demonstrate empathy towards those who are playing something for the first time. If not, they're probably just a bit of a dick with their own problems. Don't let those people get to you, which I know is easier said than done. Anyway, depping is difficult. If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for, that you want to be discussed on the podcast or shared, then let me know. You can email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. 
That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Huge thanks to JP Muir for being my guest in this episode. And as always, thank you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, for listening. It really means a lot to me and it's incredibly heartening to know that people all around the actual globe are listening to this silly little potted cast that, for the most part, is produced in the wee hours in my pyjamas, often with a recalcitrant feline stalking over my keyboard. Thank you all so much. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Chat to you soon. Bye.